Welcome to the Spinster Life Podcast. I'm Amy. And I'm here with Yana Slack. And we're going to discuss how single women can live alone and not have people ask that question. Who's going to take care of you when you're old, when you're sick, when you're infirm, when you're injured? Because that is something that happens a lot. So welcome, Yana. Hello. Thank you. You are so welcome. Uh, I was so excited to do this episode with you because people are concerned on your behalf when you tell them that you're single and mm-hmm. that you're a spinster and that you have no plans of marrying or of living with somebody or having mm-hmm. kids so that they'll take care of you when you get old. Tell us a little bit about, well, tell us a little bit about you first. What is your background? Uh, how did you come to be so knowledgeable about spinsterhood and so knowledgeable about the ways that women can support each other? Who my background, like many spinsters, I've lived like a thousand different lives and worn a thousand different faces, had a really varied life experience, but there's been sort of a common thread that's woven through all of it. And it is creativity and female empowerment. Female empowerment is such a cringy kind of phrase, but it's been um, co-opted by, you know, by by everybody. it's, you know, so, so sometimes the truth is in the phrase. And yes. so those two dual prongs of my life force have expressed in myriad ways. So first of all, I had a lot of really amazing uh, spinsters in my family who had done incredible things in their lives and who were really powerful role models for me in terms of this alternative version of adult female humanity and adult female expression and the things that they were doing, the way that they engaged with their communities, the friends that they had, the freedom that they had was always something that stuck with me and always felt like a very valid choice for what I would be when I grew up. I saw family members and community members who were married or who had children or were partnered in various ways. But then I also had these other role models. And there was something about the peace of their lives and the spontaneity of their lives and the freedom of their lives that was very interesting to me, even as a kid. Although I don't think I had the word yet, the whole the spinster concept yet. I just sort of had this alternate version of adult female life. And Then I I was an English major in college and was reading a lot of the classics and the canon and all of that. That's when I think I started to really understand of like spinster as sort of a cultural concept because there are just a lot of great spinsters in literature and or, you know, spinster characters, etc. So I think that's when I started to become aware of the word. And I've, like I said, I've lived a lot of different lives and had a lot of different goals and tried a lot of different things in my life. And I hetero cohabitated for six-ish years. And and I've, I've lived in cooperative roommate type situations as well. I've also lived by myself. But now as I come to into my 40th rotation around the sun, things are looking a lot different in terms of what I really want for my future. And in the last, I guess, three or four years, I just started to really conceive of spinster as a really deeply valid life choice and deeply expansive life choice because I feel like, you know, that word and the patriarchal cultural connotations around it, it can, it, 
it can feel like a prison. I mean, there's even so many letters in the word spinster that like are that are in prison. It seems like this like sad dead end. But I was starting to feel it as more of this what if expansive possibility. And also, as I said, you know, a major aspect of my life has been female empowerment, but also really deep, deep, deep study of sacred feminine histories. And when you really start to conceive of history outside of the couple millennia of patriarchy, you start to see that there are so many different ways that humans have lived and that this two people living in a house with their offspring formula is so arbitrary. And also, as you get into your 40th return and you've got a lot of friends who have made that choice or family members who have made that choice and you start to see the downside of it. You do. You really do start to hear everybody's stories and they want to talk to you about it because you're the single one and you're the one with a adventurous yes. life that they <laughs> they look to you with some amount of jealousy and some amount of maybe regret in their lives about like the path not taken. They wonder what could have been if they'd chosen something different. You really start holding this kind of alternate pole of, you know, I, I believe that there are like many axes of the feminine. There's the woman whole into herself. There's the empress who's deeply involved in the reproductive cycle. And there's many different ways within both of those expressions of the feminine that that it can express. You know, like I, I anyway, I won't get into all of that. But, but yeah, you start to hold this other pole of the feminine in your life and in your social circle and stuff. And you start providing a ton of invisible support of you're the one with the freedom to really be there for your friends who are in the trenches of new motherhood, who are at home with the two-year-olds and not seeing adults. You're the person that they can talk to, the other adult that can that has the time to just come and sit with them for three hours until nap time, you know, (laughs) type of thing. Yes. And that is something through our research into this episode that that we've definitely found is just looking at spinsters throughout history and how invisible they truly are. And how what we're doing, we can maybe provide a little bit of visibility for spinsters and everything they do, and all of the care that they provide. And ways that spinsters can maybe get a little bit of that back. So they feel a little bit more stable in their choice to be a spinster. Exactly. That is so true because, you know, like it's obvious there have been single women since, you know, like primordial times, you know, from from like the earliest sparks of civilization. Even if we're just talking about like the big temples and stuff, like, you know, this this idea of like every woman living in a house with a man is so new. (laughs) And that's very heteronormative, but I'll just keep going. But isn't our whole society very heteronormative and isn't hetero the the implied default for everything? Right. I guess. Yeah. So good. Just being the literal devil's advocate. Um, (laughs) But I do believe like in a way, almost like spinsters are born. I mean, there are people who make that choice later on, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a really valid expression of the feminine. And for younger future spinsters to not have to move through this world of confusion of, well, why don't I want to like get married? Or what? why is the idea of living with my romantic partner, whether it's male, female, whoever, why is that so like, 
just naturally doesn't feel right to me or isn't just a misalignment for me. You know, my crazy, is this wrong? And it's no, you're a spinster. (laughs) Right. It is is who you are and embrace it and, and love it. I, yeah, I, I do remember as a kid, my parents would tease me. They had a hope chest for me and they would, they will, when you get married and when you have a family and even as a small child, I would be like, oh my gosh. I don't think that sounds right. Like, yeah, oh, that's what's going to happen to me. Yeah, I, 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 I did not have like that. I, my parents didn't have a hope chest, <laughs> but there were, you know, there were, they would be just passing comments sometimes, and I, and it always struck me as like, really, me? Like, you're looking yeah. at me and thinking that's my future? You know, like it was. It always struck me as just. I didn't really think too much in it about it because I was a kid, but. It, it just always felt sort of like, I didn't feel like a swell of hope or a swell of like excitement or like, yes, this is true. I just felt like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a little bit confused and then a little bit doubting yourself because mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't even a choice for you. The, your life yeah. path was clear to you and it wasn't getting married. It just, yeah. it just wasn't the thing that I thought about for myself and my future. I thought Mm -hmm. about having a career. I thought about having my own house. My dream for my future didn't involve a person, another person, a male person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking right now, because so like I said, I had some really great proper spinster role models in my family, but I also, both my grandmothers were widows. I just had this general female, generational female role models who were not living with another person. Yeah. They, they, even into their like elderly years, they maintained this sovereignty of self. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my. It, it, in the domestic sphere that just made sense to me. It just always made sense to me. I loved going to my Oma's house and seeing like how everything in her house was exactly set up for her. Everything was just exactly how she needed it. I'm a Cancer Rising and a Cancer North Node. So like home and stuff and like home routines are very like inspiring and exciting to me on this like deep level. And I just loved that idea of like one day I could be this like old lady. And my Oma had a huge community. She was very involved in her church, a very intergenerational community. She had friends who were in their 20s. She had friends who were in their 50s. She was extremely inspiring in that way. But she had her whole house and it was just perfect for her. Every little thing. She had like a little keychain flashlight thumbtacked above her thermostat so she could press it and like look at her thermostat like it was just her whole house was like this perfect little microcosm of her this perfect expression of her and her needs and yeah that was super exciting to me that was way more exciting to me than like the alternative of of not having that space of somebody saying i don't why is this flashlight here i don't i don't Mm -hmm. understand or those just like little things that that you have that are Mm -hmm. yours and that you need to function someone Mm -hmm. else might have a problem with um Mm -hmm. just what a great thing to see what an amazing (laughs) thing to see from such a young age and know that this is possible know that this little this little microcosm that's all yours is very possible. Yeah. And you can have it. Very attractive. Yes. (laughs) Yes. A Um, room of one's own. Yes. So I guess it does lead into the topic and how we stumbled upon this topic of what, did you see anything that happened in their later years or if they got sick or if they got injured and taking care of themselves? Was there, was there anything that you, you noticed about 
how they went about that. Mathira Oma, were there people from the her community and her friend group that would come in and take care of her? So I would say yes. She lived fiercely independently into her very late 70s with the assistance of people from her church. She cultivated a lot of really deep relationships. And I was lucky to meet some of her, you know, just she had this group of people that they would just get together once a week. And it was friends and their adult children and their cousins, you know, it was like this whole great group of people. And they could, they would be on hand for helping her with the heavier lifting of things. She also lived near my aunt, my mom's sister. So she had a little bit of family support. Someone would know if she wasn't showing up for something. And when she was in her late seventies, she made the decision to go from her house to a, a, a very independent, it was run by Lutherans, um, a very independent apartment in like an older folks apartment building. No, you know, it was more, it, it was like all these people were living together more for like the social aspect and the community aspect, not so much because they needed hands-on medical care. Yeah. Um, and so, and it was just a smaller space. It was easier for her, but even though I loved going to that apartment because it was just so cute. And so it was just her own perfect little heaven place. And, and then Sometime later, after she'd been there for, oh gosh, I don't want to say years, be I don't want to say like time frames because this was all a long time ago. But after she'd been there for, it was like maybe five or seven years, she had a heart attack. And that was when she started to need more hands-on family care. And then she ended up living with my mom for a bit and with my other, with my aunt for a bit. And then she went into more full-time assisted care. She maintained that significant period of independence on the strength of her community and the way that she was tied to them. And the love that people had for her was incredible. She was very respected and very loved. I, I think part of that too probably had to do with the time that she did have to invest in the community and develop these relationships. Totally. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. That Absolutely. She, you know, that she got back what she gave. And yeah. That definitely helped her. Let's talk a little bit about how we came to this because we both at, at very like parallel times, we both had incidences where we weren't able to care for ourselves as fully as we'd like. Um, I slipped on a stupid seed pod from this demon tree in our front yard <laughs> and I twisted my foot and I wasn't able to walk on it properly for like two weeks. I'm still limping. And at, you know, at various times oh in my, my life, I have, I have also lived alone. Fortunately, now I was, this is a time when I'm living with a roommate. So I had someone on hand that was able to help me do all of these things, go to the grocery store, fetch things, lift heavy things. Mm -hmm. uh, these are all things that I wasn't able to do. Walk my dog. You know, I wasn't able to do mm -hmm. these really basic things to sustain myself. So if I had been living alone at that moment, I, I mean, I, in my head, I was like making that plan too. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, if I lived alone, what, what would I be doing? I mean, you know, grocery delivery, hiring a dog walker, all of these things, but you know, that gets expensive and it, and it, you know, it takes a little bit more trust. You have to trust outside of your circle instead of yeah. trusting someone that's in your circle and mm -hmm. someone, you know, that I know and knows my dog and, and, 
much less stressful than having to bring in this outside person. What about you? What what was your experience that made you start thinking <laughs> my, about this issue? My come to Jesus spinster moment was <laughs> I, I was staying with my brother and I had been there for several months helping with his, with my nieces and just spending time with my family. And I woke up in early March on a Saturday morning. I I woke up and I started my meditation practice. And I looked over at my watch as I was sort of midway through my meditation to kind of gauge where I was. And then I turned my head back and I experienced the world like turning over on itself. And it began this bout of vertigo that was totally incapacitating for about five days and mildly incapacitating for about five more. And then was just lingering and hanging on and just sort of generally affecting my ability to move and my ability to move mostly and and do tasks for basically until I went to see my amazing acupuncturist two weeks ago and she fixed it. But it was, I had never been incapacitated like that, like unable to get out of bed of just standing up and clutching my way along furniture to the bathroom a couple times a day, maybe getting to the kitchen, you know, to kind of clumsily fill a mug of water or something. I mean, it was, it was, I I never experienced that before. I've, I've always had a body that was very able to move. And so I, you know, as I'm lying there in bed with my nieces, like coming in to like (laughs) play doll with me as I'm like totally like prostrate, I can't move my head, (laughs) but they, you know, I had a lot of time to think and all I could think was how grateful I was that I was, that this came on out of nowhere which is very often how vertigo comes on. Because once you get vertigo and tell people you have vertigo, they're like, oh, I had it too. It's amazing how many people have dealt with it. But it comes totally out of nowhere. And I just thought, you know, what if this had happened at any other, so many other times in my life? And what would I have done? And I was doing the same thing as you. I was like, well, you know, I I could like, I could order takeout to feed myself, just running through different scenarios in my head. I could call a friend and they could just come and make sure that I like get to the bathroom safely or something. Um, But ultimately I was really grateful to be in a community of loving people, like to go through that and to feel taken care of by people who genuinely wanted to take care of me, you know, in with, with whom I was in like a reciprocal relationship. It wasn't just someone that I was like hiring. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a little bit of my experience and yeah, it, it makes you start to wonder, okay, so as a spinster, as someone who is enjoying all of the benefits of this life choice and of this lifestyle, how do I also build the structures in my life so that I can be taken care of and that I can continue to enjoy this life and not, you know, have to become a recluse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> right. <laughs> or, or yeah, having to pay somebody or bring in people that you mm-hmm. don't know and that aren't part of your inner circle. And, and yeah, it, it, it really felt like it was like, you know, the universe being like, okay, girl, it's time to design some structures to, to, to really think about this. And yeah. Of course, you know, it's happened. It's a very like midlife crisis thing to 
be like, okay, so now the next 40, like, how are we setting myself up for the next 40? And so this, I I feel really blessed by the experience because it ultimately, even though in the true thick of it, those first five days, I was like, within, within about 36 hours, I was like, okay, if this goes on, I mean, I... I will off myself. I mean, trigger warning, but like, you know, yeah. this is just like, there's no way I'm living like this. Yeah. And, oh, no, I, mean, I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine just like, oh, this so is insane. my life now. And yeah, I no, this. I mean, I, I move my head a, a quarter of an inch and like the room just like spins like crazy, like no way. Right. Um, like I, I stopped drinking like that in my twenties. Like, why is this happening to right. me? <laughs> <laughs> totally. It was like the worst thing. And and partic- for just specific to me, like nausea and dizziness are my absolute least favorite feelings. I would rather feel pain. I would rather be burned. Nausea and dizziness, not for me. Anyway, so uh, so yeah, you got to figure out. Okay, so what are the structures? And as soon as you ask, as soon as, well, at least for me, as soon as I ask a question like that the universe is like, ding, 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 ding. let me just drop all these ideas and all of these like people and thoughts and books and stuff to judge your imagination yeah. and see just what you can create you, in your life. To get you started. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and you have a lot of great examples from history that you've drawn inspiration from. Let's let's just talk about your favorite examples. The Beguines. <gasps> the Beguines! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, um, okay, I'm... <laughs> This is something that I'm so excited for you to talk about. In our research, you did point out that this group of women was basically annihilated. They were removed from history. And I don't know that much about them. So I'm so excited for you to tell us more about them because they sound amazing. And they really did build a structure for themselves. Okay, so the Beguines. So like I was saying earlier, throughout history, there have been moments where for whatever socioeconomic like demographic natural disaster war etc phenomenon there have been suddenly a bunch of single women where women have had to step into roles that they never had to do when all of the men were emptied out of their village for some campaign or for whatever to go build a road somewhere or etc they were genocided or they were taken prisoner by some conquering group, etc. So there have been these periods throughout history where suddenly there's like a bunch of single women and they're they're suddenly doing the men's jobs and they're like, oh well we gotta figure out like a new way to live. And one of those times that I that I'm personally currently completely obsessed with was the Crusades. And it was it was a time when there was this absolute drain of males and masculine energy and role bearers out of medieval villages and taking them to Middle East in an attempt to colonize the Middle East. And they left all of these women behind. The historical context here is also the medieval church and this very fluid, mystical version of Christianity that was in place at the time and that was really growing in like 1100s, 1200s. And what came out of that is, so we've got all of these single women, we've got the rise of a sort of new merchant, proto-capitalist, city-state 
situation that's coming out of the mud of the Middle Ages. We've got a bunch of women who are single and becoming involved in this mystical version, very spiritual version of Christianity. And we've got a lot of social problems of orphans, widows, people who can't read, etc. So th there just started to be this almost spontaneous movement of women in Italy, in Spain. They had different names. They were called like the Beatas in Spain. They were called something else in Italy, in sort of the, the low countries, Netherlands, Belgium. They were called Beguines. In France, they were called, sometimes they were called the, Les Sœurs Gris, the Gray Sisters. But they were just women who were starting to come together and figure out a way to keep themselves protected, to practice their spirituality, and also to be in service to the community, to sort of live their dharma. And it looked a lot of different ways. It, it would sometimes just be a private house with three women living in it. And they were basically women who had either been widowed, they had never married, they had married but had come, had sort of a spiritual realization along with their husband and decided to not be married anymore, but not in a bad divorce kind of way. So th th there were informal versions of this where it was housemates living together and then just being a service in their community. But they were also more, more highly organized, like professional versions of this where the, the core beguinage, which were like very big, big architectural complexes with many different homes, like rooming houses, schools, churches, and it was all women living together and taking care of each other and running an infirmary and running a school. The thing that's different between Beguines and nuns is they're totally independent. They were accepted by the church, but they weren't granted their authority by the church in the same way that, you know, like a monastery would be. And so they were able to, they, they were self-supporting and they would get involved in this sort of nation industry that was growing, including cloth making. And especially in like the Netherlands, in the low countries, Northern Europe area, they had um, looms and ways to make cloth and sell cloth. And they were so efficient. So if you've ever done a big project with a lot of different women who are all working together, it's almost like you develop this kind of hive mind where suddenly it feels like no one's even working, but somehow this huge thing is getting done and you just know what you need to do. And you know, when you take a break, it's fine because suddenly this other woman appears to like do the job you were going to do. And it's, it becomes this very incredibly efficient way of working. And so the Beguines were able to produce their cloth and their products at such and in such an efficient way that they were able to undercut the prices that like these larger male merchant owned houses and looms and factories were doing. And so they actually had the guilds had to get the governments to enforce almost like sanctions on the Beguines, like keep them from being able to sell as much of their work as they wanted to. They could only sell this much. They could only sell it on these days. They could only sell it for, for this amount of money etc. Because they were like undercutting the market just because they were naturally more efficient. And they also weren't out to make a profit. They did live lives that right. were they, they, they were They were just aesthetic, ex correct? Exactly. They, just, exactly. They, they lived simply. And that, I guess that's also a way to be sustainable and sustain that kind of lifestyle is if you don't need that much, then 
You don't need to worry about amassing a profit. They just needed as much as they needed to care for themselves mm-hmm. and to eat and to sustain the, the industries and the, mm-hmm. the public works projects that they had started. They were sustaining a lot with what they were doing. There were like 700 women living in some of these court beguinage in like the 1200s. The reason why suddenly in this extremely patriarchal culture, extreme heteropatriarchy, that suddenly it was like okay for 700 women to be living together without any like male guidance or protection or anything. The reason why it was okay is because the beguines were so valuable. to their communities and to the governments that they were living under, that they were like protected because of the the services that they were providing because they were educating this populace that was coming out of, like I said, like the mud of the Middle Ages. They were educating people. They were creating a populace that was able to go into these new nation industries and they were providing such a value to the places that they lived in and it was recognized and therefore their presence was tolerated. And of course they were Christian, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, right. they, so that all they, helped a lot. They slid under the radar yeah. a little bit, yeah. but, but yeah, they, their value was known. They were taking care of the leper problem, <laughs> you know? And like, right. Which I mean, that in itself has to be huge. That's a, a huge problem. They keep it yeah. out of sight, out of mind. So the government mm-hmm. can just continue to you know, be a, a hetero patriarchy and, and do things that they think are important, but all mm-hmm. like this, this really important work of taking care of the sick and making sure that they're not spreading it to others as well. Although it's much harder to spread leprosy than I think yes. we all, we all believe that yes. it is. So the, the men in, tr- in charge, in quotes, can go out and, and do the things and conquer while these women are just like, quietly living this great life and forming this great community and doing all this really important work. It's just appalling that this history of this group of women isn't more well known. I read an article, I think it was from around 2008, and there still were uh, Beguines. The last, the, la- the last, like, woman officially affiliated with a Beguinage that had, that had roots that had been continually operating from the Middle Ages died, I think, in like 2013 or something. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, you know, d- died in this century. Right. It's and really it's very recent of these that these women have still been around and, and operating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a tradition that, that I mean, it's amazing to think that it's it's not many, but there, there have been beginages that have continued in operations since the Middle Ages. Yeah, through history. But they're like, just not a huge part of the the world history that we learn. We just learned yeah. these broad strokes, and we're not learning about these smaller, not even small. This wasn't small. This was a pretty big movement about this, like, more quiet, less grand. It's not war. It's peace. Right. It's the peaceful actions of these it's, women who weren't it's out total for- total peace. Right. They weren't out for glory. They weren't out to make a bunch of money. They weren't out to conquer. They weren't out to colonize. They were just out to protect themselves and to band together and make their communities where they lived a better place. And to, they, they were guarding the the sovereignty of their spirits and their what what they knew to be true for themselves. And they found the way to do that within their society. Some of these women, the the magistras who 
ran their ran like the big begging notches. But also these were women that like great religious people, leaders of kingdoms would come to see in private council. They were deeply in service to their communities, but they were also really held as sources of wisdom. They, their prayer, you know, in the Middle Ages, there's and in, you know, Christianity today, still in many places, like there was a lot of mythology and dogma around prayer and, and get, getting people to pray for certain things. And, and some people's prayer is more, is better than other people's prayer. And, yeah. and the prayer of the Beguines was like really sought after. And you had these like really incredibly celebrated figures who were resources, not just for their immediate community and for like the work that they were doing in their com immediate communities, but like for the like rulers and stuff and were possibly influencing like world events or, you know, yeah. local events at least. Yeah. And then we just don't remember them. I guess these women, they weren't out for that either. They weren't out no. to be remembered, but perhaps we should pay more attention to the contributions of women and especially single women throughout history. Amen. <laughs> I mean, it's changing now. I mean, we've got, there's the people writing the books. There's a group of women in California, the Sisters of the Valley, and they, they, they have occasionally referred to themselves as modern Beguines. And it's, it's, there's like the practical aspect of how do a bunch of like women live together. The Beguines came from every single background. You know, at a court Beguinage, you'd see like someone who had been born a duchess with a woman who had just come off of the docks, like, three days ago, you know, and they're yeah. holding hands in the chapel. The descriptions of the beginning worship is so incredible of that they're like dancing and singing. I mean, it's pretty trippy. It's like very like 1960s, like <laughs> flower child <laughs> like, kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you got people from all of these different walks of life. How do you have like the practical aspects of like, how do you have all these people living together? But then also, which is useful for for women who are designing single women and spinsters who are like designing the next decades of their life or looking toward their final decades of this life for women who are spiritually minded or you know on a devotional path of some kind it's also really useful for how do you create communities that maintain that spiritual sovereignty but also maintain the spiritual sanctity at the same time Right. Yeah. How do you keep both of those things together? Because in a looser group, not united under the totalitarianism of the Catholic Church, like, how do you how do you keep that? And I guess, like you said, it was just a hive mind. It was these women coming together and just working together as one and yeah. leaving ego out of it and, and just deciding yeah. what's best for the group. And yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if you I mean, you've ha ever had the experience of of being in the hive mind. I I have experienced it like several times through participation in various groups, and it's unbelievable what you know what is possible if for women who are who who come together and just decide to like do something and do it in a way that maintains everyone's health, everyone's wellness, everyone's highest and best moment to moment existence. It's like this magic just can descend and everyone does what they need to do. And at the end of the day, no one's overtired. No one's stressed out. Everyone feels really nourished by everything that's happened in the day. And it's just amazing. It doesn't mean that there's not squabbles. It doesn't mean that there's not jockeying for not. position and growling and occasional claws, but it's a truly incredible 
experience and it's real. And that's what keeps coming to me as as I'm, you know, learning more and more about the Beguines and the, the way that they were just so efficiently able to like handle their shit. It's just incredible. I mean, they were so commercially astute in so many ways. But back to also what you were saying about the ego piece, the thing about like those women that I was talking about, the the leaders uh, in the middle ages of these movements, uh, you know, the sort of celebrated, I almost said guru, but I don't want to like use any (laughs) wrong words, but you know, these these beggings who became like trusted counsel or were seen to be specifically, particularly spiritually elevated. They most like instead rather than being like oh i got the kings like talking to me now you know everyone i'm like i'm getting the best visions yeah they 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 actually just kept getting more and more ascetic and ending their lives living in a little waddled twig house type of thing and just wanting to be as poor and in the blessing of poverty as possible and so yeah it really didn't seem to be a very ego-driven overall movement. Yeah, which I would argue even the Catholic Church has, a, there's a lot of ego in the Catholic Church. And, prob- <laughs> and probably in, in you know, the, the lives of, of yeah. nuns as well. And maybe that's why this isn't talked about, because it is a departure from the official Catholic Church and all these kind of more... Absolutely. I, you know, I never thought about that, but I think that that's probably really true. The thing about the nuns in the Middle Ages, if you wanted to join a convent, this is a very broad statement, but you generally needed to have a pretty serious dowry. It was like rich women yeah. who were in convent. So like, f- so for which went rich women who were spinsters, convent actually was a word that was invented for the Beguines. The, the, the Beguine communities were called convents. And a nun lived in a monastery. Little fun fact. Um, really? So, Interesting. so if you were a, if you were a, a wealthy woman, an aristocrat or something who had a dowry who was slated for marriage, but you were a spinster and you didn't want to get married or for whatever reason, you didn't want to get married. The monastery was an option for you because you had a big dowry that would pay your way into the monastery and pay to feed you for the rest of your life. And so it really wasn't an option. It wasn't like an open thing for most women and it was, certainly wasn't an option for former prostitutes or former sex workers right. or orphans or even widows sometimes so yeah it, it right, was actually they'd already been married they couldn't get married to jesus they'd already been married <laughs> <laughs> but you know you need it was more you just needed to have money to go into a monastery as a proper nun but anyone could be a begin that is so interesting because was, i i knew that there were women who joined i'm going to say convent because that's the word that i know but i guess they joined they joined the catholic church as a nun in order to protect their 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 wealth and at least they got the say over where it went i guess it wasn't 100 mm. protected but they got mm-hmm. the say i didn't yeah. know that that was like a requirement of of that yeah it generally it was not usually un- unmoneyed unlanded uh, untitled women who were yes. in monasteries as official nuns that I mean, there, that just, there are exceptions, you know, but in of general, course, of course, <laughs> but and that t- totally makes sense. Like the Catholic Church is one of the richest entities there is or was I, at some point. It was one of the more wealthy. I don't even know how you would describe that. But yeah, there's there's just a lot of wealth in the Catholic Church. And that totally makes sense that they would be like, well, that's sort of, you know, you have to you have to join you gotta pay you to play. To, you got to pay to play. Right. <laughs> you want this protection? Well, you, you got to. Give us your money then. Yeah, exactly. It's either that or or your husband gets it. Yeah, 
do you want to be married and be living that life? Or do you want some semblance of freedom? Yeah. <laughs> or some semblance of autonomy or right. sanctity but of self? Do you want to be someone's property? Do you want to be someone else, <laughs> a, a man's property or God's property? Your yeah, choice. Yeah, your choice. <laughs> You're, it's, it's, you have so much choice. I also read that they're just more, like you said, there's former sex workers and there's women that have been married. They're They're more tolerant of sexuality and... Once you become a begin, am I correct that then you did adopt a, a vow of chastity, but it was just sort of part of that yeah. whole you're you're giving up these worldly things for the spiritual connection. But you could you could still have been married. You could still decide yes. to enter into a sexual relationship and then be allowed back into the begins if that didn't work out or or wasn't right. for you and you wanted to stop doing that. Where the Catholic Church, like if you get married, you're can't be a nun ever again. I, is that true with the Catholic Church? I don't even know. I don't know. You know what? I I don't know. I'm not particularly because I do know that like because so. I, I, I do know that like queens and stuff. You know, didn't like certain medieval queens and like Renaissance queen type people like after their husbands died they would like go into a convent or something Maybe. or into a monastery. I don't remember. I guess but that's the other thing that royalty could just change the rules of religion and they yeah. could change it to whatever they needed it to be for that period of time. Yeah, that's true. But so with the Beguines, th that was always the question. That was always like the knife's edge that they were walking as non, or I should say lay religious women who lived in society, were out in society, were going to meetings, were selling their cloth, were selling their wares, were they, they were artists. They would, you know, there were a lot of different ways to live as a begin. One of the things that was constant in their life was accusations of sexual misconduct. This is, this is the time when women are still being dragged out of their homes and burned, coming off of several centuries of that happening a lot. And one of the greatest femicides that's like ever happened in the history of humanity. So there's this discomfort around a bunch of women living together and going about just being free in their societies, moving about the city for with, of their own volition, etc. So it's something that they had to internally self-police really strongly. And there were a lot of guidelines put in place around, you know, you always left with a partner from the from the beguinage. You know, you you moved about the city and at least a group of two. They're one of the services that beguines. So, you know, beguines were like they were getting trained as midwives. They were there at people's births. They were washing bodies. They were with the dead. They were they were supporting people through all these different transitions in life, all these invisible, quiet, this is why they're invisible, because even though they were like so deeply much a part of our history and their society, they, you know, they were performing invisible women's work. And so, but it started to be that it, it, it was becoming very common for beggings to be praying at people's bedsides as they died. They were, you know, sort of deathbed people to, you know, people to be at deathbeds. But because of these the potential of accusations of sexual misconduct or sexual freedom, goddess forbid. In, in some areas, they had to stop do, doing a lot of their services, especially if it involved like overnight vigils and stuff. And they would only then be able to go to deathbed vigils for members of the clergy or high-ranking aristocrats or the members of their family and stuff. So there was when you were a begin you it was you were definitely celibate i guess but it was 
not uncommon in the Middle Ages for a woman, if she was widowed, or even if she just sort of had like, like one one of the famous biggies, she got married when she was around like 16 or something, and her husband was 17. (laughs) They, they had like a joint religious experience in some time, a couple years after they got married, where they realized like that they actually wanted to live like this apostolic lifestyle. I should say the Biggins were really, they were inspired by living like the apostles. So they wanted to be out in the community. So this couple, they had this sort of joint religious realization and they decided they were going to be live the, I think it's called la vita apostolica. It's the Latin word. And so they basically just decided they were going to live as like brother and sister for the rest of their lives. And they founded separate lay religious communities. But then it was also very common if a woman was widowed and she had five kids, she would just be like, you know, I'm just going to give these kids to my husband's family and I'm going to go join a beguinage. <laughs> and uh, yeah, live, I mean, if you're you going to make life difficult for single women, why wouldn't you just cho- choose like an easier path? And and, yeah. a, you know, maybe a better path for the children, too, to make sure yeah. that they're taken care of and make yeah. sure that you're taken care of. And Yeah. So, Biggie and Sweetie, they could come from any walk of life. But when they were in the Biggie they were, you, ha- you had to be celibate. And it was an internally policed thing. It had to, you know, it had to do with Christianity and mysticism and that and that medieval idea around the purity of the vessel. But it, it was also because they had to be, they had to dot all of their eyes and cross all of their T's. And they expressed an incredible amount of freedom and sovereignty, but they also were living in this society that at any moment could just decide, it's a bunch of witches. Let's go burn the whole right. thing down. So they had, they were, they were nonetheless constricted. Spinsters are, they're so valuable. Obviously there were spinsters besides the Begins and not all yes. the Begins were spinsters since some of them had been yeah. married and some mm-hmm. of them had had lives before. You know, just even having a spinster in the family. I'm thinking of like British literature and I'm thinking of Downton Abbey's one example that pops to mind of having that spare daughter, having one daughter that's earmarked as the spinster and mm-hmm. her job is to take care of the parents as they age. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's just talk about that too. Having a spinster in the family can be such a valuable thing because then you are not spending that money on care from outside sources. Absolutely. And- in the in the popular imagination or the mainstream imagination, it's always like, oh, you know, you had a dud, you know, you, <laughs> there's, there's one right. that didn't get married, you know, oh, that's too bad. You got a spinster. And in reality, like in the actual functioning of a family and every family's different and et cetera, et cetera. But what a spinster can bring to a family, the, the amount of intergenerational wealth that yeah. she can preserve in a family, the way that she can serve not just not just the previous generation and the next generation, but like several generations. I mean, I feel like any family that has that has a spinster in it, they like got a blessing, you know, and this is not to like prescribe that that the spinster's job is to then care for everybody around them. But but the thing this did often fall to those women who either just didn't have the opportunity to get married Mm -hmm. uh, because of like depletion of male population because of Mm -hmm. wars or or Mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
or just because they chose not to, to, yeah, to have the time to have maybe a little bit more in the way of like emotional resources to, to care for the people around them. I know in another episode I was doing research for, they were talking about that spinster aunt that would come, you know, when the new baby was born and she'd mm-hmm. help out with the new baby for a little while and mm-hmm. then, you know, go back to wherever she came from. And, mm-hmm. and yes, absolutely. A total blessing to have this person in and the family to to be able to serve so many roles and to help so many people. And imagine just like the reframe in society that could happen around that if every family who had a single daughter wasn't like, oh, you know, like, I just right. want oh, her to be happy, you know, I, yeah. just, I, I wish she could just fulfill her destiny or whatever. And instead was like, oh my gosh, we're one of the lucky ones. We got, you know, we have a single woman in our family. Like we won the lottery. Right. (laughs) Or just to be like, she is, she is happy. She is living her best life. She chose to be single and she loves it. And And, and imagine how much that kind of celebration of her value would feed the happiness of a single woman, you know, and would feed her ability to be of even greater service to her family and the world and and to herself. Yes. And and to herself, a woman that can do the things that that can find the time to really identify the things that make her fulfilled and make her happy and Mm -hmm. do those things. And then still have that time and energy left over to care for other people and to be involved Mm -hmm. in their communities. So there's the aspect of care. There's the aspect of just being the hands-on caregiver of the next generation or the previous generation or the sibling who might be living with mental illness or something else. And But then there's also the aspect of the community building. And parents sometimes, because of the way that family life is structured in the United States in the West, their social life can sometimes be just like the parents of the kids that their kids get along with kind of thing. And whether or not I actually genuinely like this person, sure, they're fine. I'll hang out with them. But is this a life? Is this who I'd be hanging out with if our kids didn't like each other? I don't know, you know. And whereas a spinster has so much more freedom to move in her community, to to be friends with people of a lot of different ages. You know, parents sometimes get locked into like a very similar age range friend, whereas a spinster has friends from all different generations and can draw in threads of community to her family that are much more varied and potentially much more long lasting than, you know, than just like the other parent at playgroup kind of thing. Right. And as your kids like start to age and they start to have different interests and mm -hmm. and that kind of, you know, they might not hang out with each other anymore. Right. And then you you spent like seven years of your life. Like what? what, I remember that person I used to hang out with. Right. Um, So there's like the practical aspect, but also it's, it's not to say like, oh, you know, like a spinster just has to be there taking care of her family. You know, she's serving her family no matter what she does, even if she's not even with her family, she's serving her family or she's serving her family in the way that her family serves her. But, and, and even like you said, if you are more like career minded, which I'm not, but if you are a more career minded person, even that is super beneficial of having, like having an aunt who has gone really far in her career and can provide the next generation with an in, with an internship, with a connection, etc. That's super beneficial. That's like a huge way of supporting 
the people in your life that you love. And so there's all, there, you know, there's so many different ways that like a spinster is so valuable to her family. And it's just not being invisible anymore. It is beyond me why after all of this history, after all of the value that spinsters have been providing to their families and their communities, why they are still so invisible. It's like a, it's a, um, it's a transitory time. You know, you're single, yeah. but you won't be single forever is kind of the implication. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? I, I will accept that. Sure. Anything can happen. Like I'm, I love being single, but I'm not opposed to being in a relationship, but it's working pretty well for me right now. So I don't have plans to actively go out and change that. And I know there right. are lots of women who they, they are committed to staying single, but we're not recognized for this being a valid choice. Yeah. And I think that kind of dovetails back to our our kind of whole thesis in this episode that part of it is like, well, you know, you have to couple up and you have to you have to build this support system for yourself in this particular way. And there's no other way to build it. Yeah, where all of our housing is set up, like literally just the way that houses are built in most of the United States, and I would say also the Western world, supports like a very specific configuration of humans living together, you know? Yes, right. And it's well, extremely- a single, single family, one, yeah. one family, one of uh, parents and offspring. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there are a lot of ways to like judge that and live with roommates and stuff. But it's very confusing to a lot of people who are, I mean, I guess I'll, I don't mean this in like a snooty way or something. But you know, it's there's a deep indoctrination that happens in our culture. Around, there is, there is a, that around right. family, like, the nuclear family, families yeah. look this way. Yeah. And I we are going to talk about that in our next episode we're going to talk about all the solutions to yeah. this problem and it, it is a problem we all are going to need extra care at some point in our lives if not on a on an ongoing basis at least you know for a short period of time illnesses happen injuries happen and yet we are going to dive deep into what can we do how can we support spinsters how can we build these support systems before they are needed and what are, what things can we provide to to people who choose to live more independently and who choose not to ascribe to the nuclear family and living in that kind of situation. Any Anything else that we should talk about in regard to single women and the way single women live and the way single women can contribute to their communities? Well, I think in sort of like a meta level, I think one way that single women can really contribute to their communities right now is by really being like out and proud <laughs> about about the way that they're living their lives, about the systems that they yeah. are have put in place, are putting in place, are seeing out in the world as something that works. But to really be embodying th this like ethos of what it means, it's so experimental. This it is like I, mean, I love that you that you use the example so often of this is like the largest growing demographic, you know, or the fastest growing demographic, and we we. One way that we can really be of service to each other is by really taking a hold of our own narratives and talking explicitly about what we're doing in our life, how we're doing it, the experimental ways that we're living, and what's working, what's not working, because this is ultimately a hive mind transformation. And it's, there's, it, it's 
going to get to a place where living as a single woman is totally valid, safe, you have life with dignity, you have life with respect and where your community values you. But one way we can really be of service right now, on top of all the other wonderful ways we are of service, is by really talking about how we're living and why it's great and what is difficult and how we have solved it. Yeah. And that's one reason that I do this podcast is to talk about this, to talk about this experience. It is one of those things where, like I said, it's been in the back of my mind for a long time that Mm -hmm. I didn't really want to get married and it didn't, it wasn't really for me. But since I have actively stopped dating and really actively embraced being a spinster, it is like a cool thing. It's like this thing that I discovered. Yeah. You know, like when, like when you're a teenager and you discover masturbation and you think you're the one who invented it. It's like that (laughs) for me. (laughs) Totally. Like, I, I invented being a spinster. Have you ever heard amazing. of this thing called a spinster? It's so cool. <laughs> Let me tell you about it. it. It is. And yes, we all need to have a little bit of that joy around this experience. Spinster and, and how joy. Spinster joy. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's it's this unique experience. And, and we should all be embracing this and... and like you said, being out and proud and and screaming it from the rooftops. Like, we're single. This is an amazing choice. And this is a choice that's available to you. Mm-hmm. And here are the pros. Here are the pros of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and presenting the cons in a responsible manner. And I think is what we're addressing with these episodes is yeah. one con is that you do have to be a little bit more creative in finding these support systems. Yeah. They're not, they're um, not easily laid. They're not part of the package deal of being born into the West. You know, right. it's like there's. And the, and the package deal you, you of have, you have getting married. Them. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to invent. You're living a life of, of invention. Yes. So stay tuned. Next week, we will be discussing the solutions that we found through our research and just thought of and want to explore a little bit more of. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time.